This week's Drabblecast is brought to you by the Flash Pulp Podcast, a thrice-weekly flash fiction podcast broadcasting fresh pulp stories for the modern age. Find them at flashpulp.com. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 224. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm Norm Sherman. Doubleheader special for you folks this week. That's two contrasting short stories by one featured writer. But first, a little about our episode sponsor this week, The Flash Pulp Podcast. This is a great show, folks, carrying on the tradition of classic radio and magazine stories from the 1930s and 40s. I'm a subscriber myself. Usually quite short episodes, always very fun and engaging. Here's a promo. The Flash Pulp Podcast. Three to ten minutes of fiction brought to you thrice weekly. Now it's three, three, three apocalypses in one. Yeah! Suffering from tough, stuck-on humans? Well, 20 hellish hours of suffocation in the all-encompassing web of Carwick the Spider God will get them right out. Too many brains lying around? The ravenous mouths surrounding zombie-fighting Ruby will quickly clean those up. Nosy neighbors? Infect them with the murder plague! And watch as they dissolve into paranoid maniacs bent on the preemptive assassination of their friends and family. Why stop at one end of the world when you can have all three? You can find them all at flashpulp.com or search for them on iTunes. Again, that's flashpulp.com. I really like this show, folks. It's worth your time and totally free, so you can't lose either way. Get ye a subscribing. All right, Drabble time. Drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, no more, no less. Give it a go and send yours into submissions at drabblecast.org or post it in the Drabble section of our discussion forums linked off of drabblecast.org. Get some good community feedback from it. Our Drabble this week is called Gary's Tension, and it comes to us from Edgar Arthur. Edgar's a psychologist working in Queensland, Australia, who works with children and their families during the day and herds cats with his wife during the night. Ho oh. ho. Edgar says if he ever gets free time in the future, he plans on not knowing what to do with himself. Edgar blogs infrequently at edgararthurs.blogspot.com. Gary's tension took on a new form. Yeah, he was always tense during interviews, but this was something different. He felt it deep in his gut, a sliding sensation, like a knot of worms languidly uncoiling themselves and becoming a single purposeful shape. The feeling grew, expanding upwards through his chest, squirming against his heart and crushing air from his lungs. Gary sat ramrod straight, sweating from his temples as he felt the first tentative brushes at the back of his throat. Panic gripped him as he felt the delicate probing at his sinuses, and the first interview question was asked.
Yep. If there's three things I hate more than anything, it's interviews and math. Interviews are tough, there's no doubt about it. Throughout history, mankind has always been terrified of them. Take the Spanish Inquisition, for example. That was some scary stuff. Okay. Uh, the, uh, it's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, uh, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see, I, I, commerce, and let's see the third one I can't, sorry. Oops, oops, oops. Hola, que tal? Uh, uh, I, Congressman, the only thing I would say to you is that these aren't necessarily toxic acids at all. ¿Dónde está el baño? I don't know, man. I was banging seven gram rocks and finishing them because that's how I roll. I have one speed, I have one gear. Go. You know, I got tiger blood, man. Can't is the cancer of happen. Can't is the cancer of happen. Hey, Rick Perry hates math too. Ugh, the Spanish Inquisition sounded like such a hard time. Answering questions on the spot can be tough, whether it's small talk on a first date. So, uh, what gender are you? Excuse me? Or answering for hate crimes on a military tribunal. War is never the answer, Mr. Gaddafi. I'm sorry, what did you say was never the answer? War. War. So, war is your answer. Okay, I guess I'm just a little confused here, guys, because I mean, I'm I'm hearing you say one thing, but then war is never the answer, Mr. Gaddafi, unless uh, unless someone just happens to come up to you and be like, "Yo, quick question, what's never the answer?" Sure, then you make an exception. Then all of a sudden, war is the answer, eh? Yes, gotcha. Interviews are scary because of masked intentions and veiled reasonings. Questions and circumstances aren't always what you might believe them to be. Hippos, for example, don't eat marbles, no matter how hungry hungry they get. And no matter how hard he tries to act like he is, your stepladder is not your real ladder. I hate you, ladder! Well then climb the hell off me and get my whiskey. And that leads us into this week's stories, Unintended Consequences and Expired, by John P. Murphy. John's a science fiction slash mystery writer, originally from New Hampshire, now living in West Virginia. He has a PhD in engineering, coordination and control of multi-robot systems, and is a graduate of the Viable Paradise Writing Workshop, class of 2010. Check out his blog at johnmurphy.wordpress.com for links to his other fiction and proof that Big Bird is in fact a velociraptor. You'll also hear from John a bit after each story in a brief author's note, giving you some background on the piece and from whence it hatched. So without further ado, we bring you Unintended Consequences by John P. Murphy. James Kennedy had stared at his sock drawer for a good ten minutes that first morning dumbfounded. He'd never seen it so neat, and he didn't remember doing it. But there they were, threadbare, but tidy and folded. The next morning had been his kitchen cabinets, peanut butter, coffee, cooking oil, lined up by size, ramen in neat rows, 
When had he done that? His hands trembled as he closed the cabinet doors. The third day, he got home from the unemployment office and went to his desk for a stamp. It was even cleaner than the cabinets. Pens, pencils, erasers, neatly arrayed. Good God, his bills were sorted by payment date. James thrust his hand into his pocket and squeezed his one-week token. He hadn't, and anyway he wouldn't. This wasn't like waking up next to a bottle he didn't remember finishing. Something else was going on. His grandmother had told stories from the old country. Little people who helped make shoes or something. He didn't remember stories of them cleaning houses, but it was crazy anyway. He worried at the thought like a loose tooth all evening. He barely remembered microwaving dinner, let alone eating it in front of the TV. He took the milk from the fridge and sniffed it. He poured a glass, half full, put two Oreos next to it. He felt stupid, but hey, worst that could happen, he'd be out half a glass of milk. Not that he could afford to waste food. James woke, coughing and spluttering. He was wet and he smelled milk, and he couldn't move. Are you mocking us? Came a high-pitched voice. It was dark. James struggled against something he couldn't see. Uh, what? Oh, enough games, Jimmy. Give it over. Uh, huh? What? Something hit him in the eye. He blinked furiously to get rid of cookie crumbs. I'll grant ye've hidden it well. We've searched your drawers, your cabinets, your desk. So well done and all that, but we're done with the games, Jimmy lad. Now I'll ask ye nicely. If ye don't answer, I'll be angry. Where is it? The lights flashed on, searing James's eyeballs. Angry murmurs surrounded him. I, I don't understand. Where's what? James struggled to raise his head. Standing on his chest, wielding half a pair of scissors, stood a little man, half a foot tall. His little face was red and contorted, like a gargoyle's. He waved the scissor at James's face. Where's the fucking whiskey? James froze, then laughed. He'd finally cracked up. Cut him. James yelped in pain. His big toe burned. It sure felt real. Oh, 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 I wouldn't joke if I were you, Jimmy. There's no whiskey, and there won't be. I'm sober, and I'm, I'm gonna stay that way. Oh, I'm sorry. Do I look like I give a good goddamn whether you're sober? It ain't for you, it's for us. It's always been for us. We just shared it out of our uncommon generosity. Until you hid it. The little man stamped down hard. James winced at the sharp pain, wondered if he'd cracked a rib. Now give it over. James's mind cleared. He'd gone through bottles and bottles, more than he remembered drinking. The day he'd poured it all out, he'd felt such blessed release. He was brought back by a sharp pain on the cheek. The little man's scissor dripped blood. Jeez, God, I threw it out. The room went quiet. Uh, uh, and why, pray tell, would she do that? It was wrecking my life. I lost everything. My wife, my job, my self-respect. Throwing that junk down the drain was the best thing I ever did. All right, the little man said quietly, lowering his bloody scissor. 
All right, I respect that. How's about this? Get us one more bottle of the good stuff and we'll call it even for tidying up. James hesitated, testing his bonds. Fine. The little man scrambled off his chest. Let him up, boys. James sat up. He considered jumping out and thrashing the little bastards, but his heart wasn't in it. He got dressed, limping, ignoring the many pairs of eyes on him. There's an all-night liquor store down the street. I'll go there. James pulled his jacket on and grabbed his wallet. He peered inside and grimaced. When you say good stuff, how good are we talking? The little man with the scissors strode out onto the table and glowered up at him. And just what do you mean by that? James pulled the bill out and waved it. I'm down to my last twenty. The little man scowled. He folded and unfolded his arms. How many you need? For really good stuff? Like three of those. More would be better. Give it here. James folded the bill twice and handed it to him. The little man unfolded it like a map and studied it. Two others leaned in over his shoulder to peer and point. Wait here, the little man said, and they scattered. James shed his jacket and sat heavily at the kitchen table. He wrung his hands for a few minutes, then looked up at the clock. 3 a.m. He got up and made coffee. He'd nearly convinced himself that the little man with the scissor was a hallucination when they returned, four of them holding... James choked on his coffee. Well, is this enough? James couldn't speak. He picked up a handful of proffered $20 bills, and then another, and then a third. Yeah, that'll, that'll do. He gulped. He smiled weakly. You know, maybe I was just a bit hasty before. Jimmy! Hey, Jimmy! The friendly voice came from behind. James turned away from the door he'd been opening and beamed. Hey, Donnie, how are you? They shook hands. Hey, I've missed you, man, Donnie said. You haven't been to a meeting in weeks. I mean, we were starting to worry. But hey, you're looking good. Are those new clothes? James showed off his new duds, a nice new sport jacket, clean blue jeans, comfortable loafers. He looked and felt like a million bucks. That was only, what, 50,000 Andrew Jacksons? Hey, so Jimmy, are we talking about a new job here? Or did your rich old uncle buy the farm? <laughs> well, a new job, sort of. Connections from the old country. It's only been a month, but let me tell you, I feel like a new man. Donnie stepped back then and glanced at the liquor store sign above the door James had been about to walk through. Oh, James, man, I thought you were, I thought you were still on the wagon. James held up his hands. I am, honest, I'm just, I'm just picking up something for a friend, really. The door opened behind him and the liquor store owner, Joey, emerged. Hey, Jimmy, I thought that was you. It's your usual time of day. Donnie gave him a meaningful look. I'll be seeing you. Uh, yeah, Donnie. Good to see you. Hey, Joey, sorry about that. What do you have for me today? Joey swept the socks cap off his bald head and wrung it as he led James into the store. Come on in. I got something you'll like. You said last week you wanted something really special. From the, uh, old country? James forgot all about Donnie. 
If it was a bottle of what he thought it was, the little buggers would pay dearly, a whole wardrobe worth. Joey gave a worried glance at the door behind the counter and leaned in to whisper. It's in the back. I put my hands on a whole cask. But this has got to be cash, you understand? Oh yeah, sure thing. James's grin spread. Oh, they'd pay for that. Forget new clothes. They'd pay Cadillac money for that. Hell, yacht money. He dug his bulging wallet out of his pocket and waved it like a flag. Joey stepped through the door into the darkened back room and beckoned. James didn't see the two big men until they'd taken him by the arms and relieved him of his wallet. What's going on? Joey shook his head and looked away as the handcuffs came out. Hey, you've been a good customer, Jimmy, but come on. You thought I wouldn't notice? What are you talking about? Notice what? Officer, hang on. This, this is all a huge mistake. The taller cop just shook his head. He gave James a wistful look, almost pity. All those twenties, Mr. Kennedy. Did you really think nobody'd notice that they all had the same serial number? Thanks for listening to Unintended Consequences. I owe this one to another writer whose work I enjoy, Chuck Wendig. He has a blog about writing called Terrible Minds, and he periodically issues flash fiction challenges to his readers. For this one, he challenged us to write a story about irregular creatures. Somewhere along the line, the little gnomes who make shoes and fairy tales got mixed up in my head with Terry Pratchett's Pixies. And at the time, I was reading through Wikipedia's article that's just a list of descriptions of con games for um, research. And so I was in kind of a duplicitous frame of mind already. Once I had my little flock of fraudsters in that scene with the Oreos in mind, the story practically wrote itself. Expired by John P. Murphy. Hey, Archie, lend me a hand, will ya? Mr. Dean set down the cardboard box that he'd been carrying with both arms. His face was red, and he mopped his forehead with a handkerchief. Archie was new to the factory, hired the day before. Mr. Dean had been very kind to him in giving him the job, and he was determined to make good on it. So he rushed over and hefted up the big TV box. He smiled after he got the box up, just to show that it wasn't a problem for him. Heavier than it looks, Mr. Dean said, and picked up a smaller box, one of the newer flat-screen TVs. Archie could see the picture on his own box of one of the older CRTs. This way, Archie. Where's it going, sir? Upstairs. These two got misplaced. The rest of the batch is already up there. They trudged along the hallway in silence, past stacks and stacks of similar boxes. They were each a few years old. Archie had peeked at them and seen the dates written in Sharpie and collecting dust. The day before, he'd been sent to collect a few and bring them downstairs. Extensions, someone had mumbled by way of explanation. Mr. Dean held the elevator door for him, and they crowded in. Archie maneuvered the box down a bit to rest on his knee. So, what are these going upstairs for? Mr. Dean tilted his head a little and just looked at Archie a minute. Did, uh... Anyone ever tell you about this warehouse, Archie? What it's for? Uh, no, sir. You didn't ask? Archie tried to shrug, but his arms protested. I figured if I needed to know, someone would tell me. 
Mr. Dean nodded sagely. The elevator doors opened again, and he let Archie go through first. Archie got a whiff of the garbage dump next door. Someone must have left a window open. Have you, uh, you ever heard of something called quantum entanglement, Archie? Archie wondered if he should have, but decided to be honest. No, sir. Well, it's not important. I don't really understand it myself. Basically, two objects are linked on a really basic level, like a, like a set of twins, you know? Okay. Archie was already lost. He trudged forward, hoping he wasn't going far. All right, so this TV was built at the same time on the same assembly line as another TV that was sold to a Miss Finch in Arkansas. It's twin brother, so to speak. Wow, that must have been a long time ago. This thing's ancient. Mr. Dean made a tisking noise. Eh, five years old isn't ancient. Why, that set you've got there could probably run for 20 years. The older models did. Practically put us out of business. The smell got worse as they walked. Archie had to lift the box up a bit to keep carrying it without dropping it, so Mr. Dean went on ahead of him. I don't know about that, sir. I mean, I don't mean to be contrary, but my aunt had one like this, and it went all haywire after only a couple years. Worse luck, it was like the very next day after the warranty expired. Mr. Dean chuckled. <laughs> Funny you mention that, Archie. Hey, just put the TV up here. Archie heaved the box up onto the shelf Mr. Dean had led him to. He backed up and realized it wasn't a shelf, but a windowsill. Mr. Dean stepped neatly between Archie and the box and gave it a shove. Out it went, leaving a strip of label on the side of the window. Archie watched the strip wave in the breeze as he heard the smash and tinkle below. One more, Mr. Dean said. Archie helped him lift the flat screen onto the windowsill. He opened the box and tore out two large chunks of styrofoam. Out went the flat screen. Yep, you see, Mr. Wolf only went for the one-year warranty, Mr. Dean said, shaking his head sadly. The TV landed with a crunch below. He produced a clipboard and made two check marks. It expired, uh, yesterday. Mr. Dean mopped his forehead, and the two of them gazed out onto the mountain of cardboard, broken plastic, and glass below. He looked up at Archie's astonished expression. Uh, what? Didn't you ever wonder why they call them TV sets? Expired started out life on Twitter with me being a smartass. A friend had asked, why do they call them TV sets? And I didn't know. I still don't know, come to think of it. But I figured that there must be two of them, and the company just keeps one. What nefarious purposes could they have? Fortunately for me, I'm also profoundly ignorant of quantum mechanics, so I had a story. And I still enjoy that visual with the broken TVs as far as the eye can see. I hope you enjoyed it. Yep, quantum physics never made any sense to me either. I mean, string theory? Dude, string is totally real. So hey, that was our double header. Hope you enjoyed both of them. If you did, or you didn't, or you have any thoughts on them, you can share your comments with the DC community and post them in story discussion in our forums. Get involved. 
So hey, before we get to our TwitFic winner this week, quick reminder about my Kickstarter fundraiser going on towards funding my next CD. Find the link in our show notes, or go to kickstarter.com and do a search for Norm Sherman. Make a pledge and get a signed copy of the CD, if and when the project gets fully funded. Good times. Or if you'd rather your spare cash go toward another worthy cause, you can donate to the Drabblecast, of course. Help us pay authors for their work and keep this show going every week. You'll find support options off our webpage, Drabblecast.org. We greatly appreciate whatever you can give. All right, this week's 100-character story winner, ROU Killing Time, with this shorty right here. They rolled into the cities and encircled the places of government, chanting aloud their slogan. We are the 3.1415%. (laughs) I can see that working. Somebody put that on a sign and hit up Wall Street. Hey man, I saw your sign. Pi equals $3.14. It's uh, it's 3.14. Whatever, man. It's damn cheap for a good piece of pie is what it is. Uh, pie is 3.14 everywhere, and it's always been. So wait, wait, what are you saying? The government's in bed with the pie industry? Dude, like, like fixing prices? No, no. Oof, man, that's good. Hey, uh, hook me up with a slice of rhubarb then, bro. Speaking of pie, hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving, safe travels, and whatnot. Remember, the Travelcast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, blog about us, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Mary Matisse. Mary's a digital artist, introvert, living in the greater Houston area. She enjoys booze, the ponderance of life's questions, stylized cat portraits, and being the only girl you know on Xbox Live. Her work can be found at amateuritis.deviantart.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you that can't is the cancer of happening.